Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. It's a new year. We started to start afresh almost with this podcast. We're going to try and be a bit more... Organised. Uh, Organised, that's the word. <laughs> um, we have proper agenda and everything. Well, we'll start with the news, I think. Um, news, podcast news. We have podcast news. We've been going long enough to have podcast news now. We have passed 500 downloads. So thank you, everybody, who's been listening. In fact, we're nearly at 700 now. And somebody, oh, two people have posted five-star reviews on the Apple Podcast page. So thank you very much for that. It's oh, great um, news. It's good, isn't it? And we're so, starting to get a few more kind of inquiries and questions starting to come through as well and more people involved. So, yeah, really good. Exactly what we want, isn't it? So you've had a little trip. Yeah, I, I spent 10 days in Germany with my with my brother and his family over there. Um, didn't really see any wildlife, but we did go to the museum. Saw the uh, pretty amazing amber collection they have in the museum at Stuttgart, which includes a, uh, I think it's a frog. Um, there's one of a bit of a lizard, I think, and various insects and other invertebrates. Um, so a pretty, pretty cool collection. Um, yeah, I like a bit yeah. of amber. Um, yeah, so that was kind of what I've been doing the last 10 days. I actually only got home a couple of days ago. So, yeah, yes, straight back to work. As a paleontologist, I feel the need to point out that you cannot clone dinosaurs from stuff in amber. But, um, yes, I've been fairly busy over Christmas, did all the family stuff. I did actually manage to get out three times, um, all which were quite productive. I sat in the photographic hide at Rain and Marsh's. And had a sparrowhawk land so close I could only photograph its head, which was rather cool. Um, I went up to a reservoir North Essex called Aberton, Essex Wildlife Trust Reserve. Um, and there's a cattle egret hanging around up there. And I managed to photograph that sitting on the back of a sheep, um, which is, you know, obviously when I post it online, people saying it should be a sheep egret, as you might imagine. Um, and there was an annoyingly elusive hen harrier. Three times it came up. Got good view, probably my best views ever, but I never quite managed a photo of them. So that's pretty good. Um, and in the new year, I popped over to Rain and Marshes again and got a kestrel set up on a tree quite close. So I've done all right already so far this Christmas time. So yeah. Making up for, for both of us, doing it for both of us right now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm probably stealing your photographic luck, I think. Um, <laughs> well, I've also well, been arguing with people on Facebook as well, which, you know... It's not a hobby of mine, but it happens. Did I, did I tell you about this? The the um, strange lady. I was on a, uh, I think it was Wild, uh, Wildlife Ponds UK. Really nice group if you like your freshwater stuff, by the way. Um, but uh, a, you know, when you've got 4,000 members, you're going to have a few odd ones. I think she got booted out after this. But I posted a picture of a grass snake, and she posted in bold a warning about how they're dangerous to your pets and they're poisonous. Um, and I politely pointed out, and I did politely ask to point out that she was wrong and that um, she shouldn't really be scaremongering about snakes. And she went ballistic and ended up sending me horrible messages through uh, direct messages through my page and stuff. So the wonders of the Internet. Oh, yeah, the joys yeah. of social media sometimes. Yes, but um, yeah, she got booted from the page. So uh, crazy people. Apparently she worked for the RSPCA, so she knew what she was on about. I don't think she did really work for the RSPCA. Because most people I work, know who work for them uh, know what they're on about, and she didn't. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd question that, I think. <laughs> yes. But there we go. Yeah. I wouldn't mind, but they're not even venomous grass snakes, are they? So. No. <laughs> Never mind. No. No, I think, think some wires have been crossed somewhere along the lines. Yeah. Never mind. Um, yes, I think we've so. got a bit of a follow-up and feedback as well, haven't we, from... Yeah. Did you want to cover that? Uh, well, you can go for this one. Okay, then. Um, my friend Graham has been in touch. Um, you may remember you asked a question about getting adults into um, wildlife. Um, he, a bit of follow-up from our last episode. Uh, for those who haven't heard it, it was on Christmas wildlife. Um, he's talking about uh, the association of robins with Christmas. Uh, he says it's probably because, well, at least partly because they're much more visible and audible during December and one of the most visible ones as well. So, uh, yeah, he says he has one singing quite audibly in the shrubbery outside Morrison's in Corringham, which is in Essex, um, the past week. And I have to say, I've noticed quite a lot of singing recently. Um, last week, I don't know if you've noticed anything in the garden, Victoria, with the birds. Uh, 
have to admit I haven't. Um, so I only got back a couple of days ago and oh, yes. was tied to my computer um, working on something all day yesterday. And to be fair, it's been raining on and off most of today and I haven't really oh. looked in the garden, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, the great tips today and yesterday were doing the whole sing the calls and singing that they do in spring so that was a uh, and snowdrops are coming up as well so spring is well, on its it, way it, it, it's not unusual to get snowdrops coming up at this time oh, of year though certainly uh, they're winter flowers uh, aren't they they are but, uh, a winter flower um, although i have to admit i i did have a quick check in the garden mm. um, when i got back and a lot of like some of my trees have got buds on and there's some stuff starting to come up which really shouldn't be coming up just yet so it looks like it's been quite mild while i've been away let's put it that way so, yeah. I think we have so, um, a couple of questions as well, don't we? So I'm going to let you. First up, we've got one from Alan, and I'm going to let Neil answer this one because I think he knows a little bit more about it. But Alan asked um, or mentioned actually that when he was younger, um, kestrels were fairly common and buzzards were less common. But now it seems to be the the opposite way round. Um, has something changed in nature to cause this turnaround? Yes. Neil, well, over to you. Well, I, I was a, I've been aware of this. This is a question, sort of one of those ones that comes up every so often. Um, and the short answer is, we're not quite sure. I believe um, is what I've heard in the past, and done a, done a bit of research around this. Um, there has been implications that the buzzards are either directly competing, or even predating the kestrels, and that I don't think that's I don't think. Well, I don't think, and I think the consensus is it's probably not the case. Um, it might be maybe intensification of farmland, but then has it changed that much in the last sort of 10, 20 years? Uh, I mean, maybe, because they, they're dependent on vole populations. The kestrel numbers do go up and down. Um, I have to say, I've, there's quite a lot around at the moment. Um, certainly in North Kent and South Essex, I've seen quite a few. They seem to be doing okay. Um, voles feed, uh, they feed on voles and lizards and stuff like that um so and vole populations going up and down up and down um you'll notice the same with barn owls and shorted owls their numbers vary with that as well um whereas uh, buzzards uh tend to eat sort of carrion rabbits um and quite a lot of earthworms you quite often see them sitting in fields eating earthworms so competition there's probably a bit of overlap in prey but could it be that who knows there's been a few um ideas suggested uh, one of them is uh, the use of rodenticide, uh, you know, rat to kill rats and mice, the poison people put down. Um, again, I don't think we know for sure. Um, the RCB have been doing some research into it. I did find um, a few suggestions they've made. They've got a nice web page on it. Uh, they think a wetter climate might be having an impact. They ha are suggesting predation from buzzards, ravens and goshawks could be poss a possibility. Um, they've got to compete for nest sites with barn owls and jackdaws and habitat changes it's, the short answer as i said is we don't know for sure but um, i'm going to look into it a bit more and hopefully come back to this question at a later date you know our new follow-up section it, it um, does sound like it's you know potentially yeah. a combination of factors rather than it being you know one single factor most of the time yeah. it is isn't it with these wildlife declines it's sometimes yeah, it's, it's, like, it's not one thing is it it's, it's yeah. a combination that sometimes one big thing sort of finishes them off or really has an impact but usually there's been some cause of decline beforehand of a lot of these things. We've got another question as well, haven't we, I believe? We have, and it was it was actually come through on Twitter. And very good time to mention, actually, if you do have any questions, you can contact us through either the Twitter page or our Facebook page. But this is from Liquid Tweeter. They basically asked, they, they've got a cherry laurel in their garden and they're thinking about taking it out um, as they don't think it adds much wildlife value to the garden and possibly replacing it with something native, like a holly. And they've just asked whether, you know, for our advice, whether it's worth keeping the laurel um, or, or changing it. And I actually did a bit of research on the on cherry laurels in particular, and they actually do provide, um, you know, quite a lot of wildlife benefit. They do, more so if it's a hedge, there's, there's a lot of potential for birds to nest in it. It's a good habitat. Um, and also underneath as well, where you get the leaf litter, um, for invertebrates, um, potentially like amphibians as well, might use it. Uh, when they flower in the springtime, um, they produce um, 
some of these small white flowers but they're really good for flies ants wasps and bees that they'll all use use those and the berries actually provide a food source uh, for birds in kind of late summer autumn time so to be honest i think you know possibly keep it you know if, it, if it's flowering and producing berries it's you know potentially is actually quite a good you know wildlife habitat for lots of different species um i think if you did want to replace it with anything then maybe holly would be um a mm. good shout um yeah. because that does also produce you know the flowers and the berries and that for for wildlife but you know i, I don't really see any reason to take it out it's you know keep an eye on it and have a look and see in in the spring you know when it flowers are there lots of insects and invertebrates and that using it and you know do the birds use it for nesting in um so i hope that answers your question well one uh, random side note of laurel is it has a cyanide or, or vinda plant so uh, you have to be quite careful when you're burning it because the smoke can be pretty toxic as you <laughs> yeah. yeah so do be so, careful if you if you do yeah. want to remove it just just yeah. be really careful as well and we, we actually have one more three actually came through my website from um grace just saying she absolutely you know loves the podcast really enjoying it um so thank you very much for, for your yeah, lovely comments for grace um and she's actually put a couple of questions towards us um or to us mm-hmm. so the first one is you know what was our first real back garden wildlife experience so i'm going to let you go first on this one neil oh god i do remember my dad getting me up i can't have been must have been eight nine years old something like that my dad getting me up one just as the sun was going down one in may or june after uh, evening uh, because there was a stag beetle next door and a magpie picked it up and all i could see was this black dot on the far side of the neighbor's garden um hardly a <laughs> a great view i had much better views later in life thankfully of them in the same garden um it's probably the first one i can think of or oh, perhaps seeing a woodpecker in my neighbor's tree as well but yeah no oh. i can't say that's the early oldest I can remember in my my personal back garden. Anyway, well, I, I have to confess I did actually ask uh, my mum about this um, <laughs> because I don't really, for various reasons, I don't really have many memories of of growing up. Um, so I I did ask my mum this afternoon and said that when I was 18 months old, uh, we actually built a pond in our back garden, um, and that really started my love of pond life. Um, smaller creatures a lot of invertebrates um, and also my love of frogs Mm. so it started when I was 18 months old Um, so that was really my first real back garden wildlife experience and I think ever since every garden really that we've lived in or every house we've lived in that's had a garden we've had ponds um, and you know frogs and wildlife and we've always tried to keep it very wildlife friendly so that I think that would be my first real back garden wildlife experience. Yeah, I've, probably about the same time. I, I think not as young, long ago as you, but um, <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't as young as I was. Of course, you're older than me. Um, uh, on. I do remember catching newts in my my garden pond. We didn't have frogs. I think we had frogs born once because we, I think because we had newts and fish in the pond till a local cat ate them all. Um, which started, started my dislike of cats. Um, no, but that definitely, you know, inspired my... I could tell you every species in that pond. We have water lice, pond olive mayflower, which I'll come back to later, goldfish, common toads, smooth newts, the occasional common frog. Um, I say they have frogs. I mean, they did have lots of them. Um, leeches, probably brown leech, Aeropabella. Oh, we didn't know the name back then, obviously. And it wasn't much in there because of the fish. And I'm sure there's something else. Oh, I'll probably be thinking of the newt tadpoles. But um, yeah, so it wasn't wasn't diverse. And I used to catch stuff with a jar with a string tied around it, which is highly ineffective, I can tell you now. (laughs) Um, Or just catch newts with my hand. I got really quite proficient at that. Um, And catching crickets, which I still can do today as I've shown many shown off many times in front of school children at work but um yes I did actually catch a newt in front of some kids that's quite cool I haven't tried catching a great Christian newt with my hand I'm not sure I'm licensed to do that <laughs> I tend to <laughs> use the net um but yes yeah I think catching newts in the pond is another bit cliche that isn't it catching newts in a pond but uh, that'll probably be an early memory for me as well 
I might think of an earlier one. I might mention it in the next podcast if I do. You have to get thinking. Mm. Um, and there was another question that she put to, put to us, and that was, what surprises us about the wildlife world? Which I think is actually a tougher one. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like everything. Yeah. It's sort of, I'm sort of so constantly either new discoveries or new to me discoveries. Um, we'll talk about one with the pond olive mayfly. Um, when I found out about it, I was like, what? You know, this really common insect and people don't know it can do this. Um, you know, things like frog hoppers have working gears. Do you know that on their legs? No, that's how they spring so high. Um, oh, so many things. Just um, Swift's not landing for two years. That was a nice fact someone told me. You know, they take off from the nest and they don't land, don't touch the ground for two years. They sleep on the wing, everything. Um, yeah, I think I think for me it's just the you know the constant discoveries that we're making. Um, just you know the the ship beauty of wildlife i mean i'm particularly fond of my amphibians and reptiles of, as people have probably gathered by now mm. um you know and i think that i don't know that that just i don't know just like the beauty the the interactions um the resilience of some wildlife actually as well that really does surprise me yeah yes um, how it's hang but the amount of wildlife in the middle of london would be a Will be a good surprise. I'll tell you one surprise that surprised one surprise that surprised me. I think that's English. Um, was here's a fun fact a lot of people don't realise. Do you realise that whales and dolphins are technically hoofed mammals? I did. Yeah. It's a cool fact though, isn't it? it when is you first cool find fact. out, you're like, what? And then you think, hold on, if they evolve from something like a hippo, in fact, which is one of their closest relatives, that kind of makes sense because it's amphibious. And then they start swimming. And you know, when you think about it, and especially when you look at the fossil record, it it I mean, that was a creationist favourite, sort of, oh, that's, that's where evolution didn't happen. Because 20 years ago, the fossil record for whales was pretty poor. And now we've basically got sort of hippolyte animals all the way down through sort of side branches into crocodile-like ones and more seal-like ones. And, oh, just, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, everything, everything surprises me. But then nothing surprises me at the same time because it's so, you know, you almost expect surprises these yeah, days. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird one, but... Yeah. yeah, I think I think yeah, pretty much kind of everything and to a point nothing. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, there we go, Grace. I, I hope that helps. <laughs> You've kind of put us on the spot with that one, so I hope that yeah. kind of helps answer your question. Um, but there we go. So, yeah, big thank you to everyone that has sent in questions or comments. Um, please do keep them coming in. Yes. So, if you want to get in touch um, through the through the Facebook page or on Twitter using um, our hashtag, which we will mention. A little bit later. Um, if you but, just want to shout out. Yeah, just yeah. If you want to shout out, drop us a you know, drop us a message, um, and we can give you a shout out. No or, problem at all. Or tell us something you've seen to make us jealous. Yeah, yeah, that too, definitely. As long as you're willing to be insulted by me on on you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be nice. Depends what it is. He'll be nice. Yeah. I'll make sure he's nice. Don't worry. Yeah, she will. <laughs> I'm scared um. of her. <laughs> not that scary. No, you're not, but I'm still scared of you. Right. Um, so, shall we move on to wildlife news? Yeah. Yeah, you can touch on the news. And yes. Then... Uh, we'll start with... Um, shall we start with that, Raven? Um, a lot of people would have seen this, uh, but it's just after we'd filmed, the, uh, filmed recorded last podcast, um, the seal pups at Winterton dunes up in uh, Norfolk um, in the sp- space of a weekend three died due to idiotic actions I think it's a nice way of putting it um, by human beings um, one died when I didn't go into the details but it was basically sur- the pup, basically what happens with seals is they come onto the beach um, the females give birth they feed up the pups with really rich milk um, over I think it's a week or two or so and so it's not very long um, and then the seals are left to fend for themselves. They shed their white, lovely, fluffy coat and go off and swim. Um, but until they shed that white, fluffy coat, they can't swim, basically. They, they'll drown if they get in the sea. And they have to feed regularly, obviously. One died from basically being starved to death because the mum won't approach the pup while there's people nearby. 
Um, there has been issues with photographers getting too close to stuff in the past, but from the sounds of this, now I am just speculating a little bit here, it sounds like people with mobile phones standing around it taking pictures and selfies probably. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it's really important to stress at this point that it does sound from these articles and, you know, from what I've heard from people that have actually been there and mm. were there recently or, you know, recently to when this happened, it's it's not professional photographers. This, you know, this was just beachgoers, um, people with mobile phones. And, you know, I've seen some crazy stuff myself. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's it's really important to stress that it, it's general people um, yeah. that have actually caused this. Mm. Because I know, and, and you've probably seen the same, Neil, there's been a massive backlash against photographers. Yeah. Um, photograph and seals as a result of this. I'll, I'll come back to that, I think. Um, basically, a second seal pup died when some idiot let their children chase it into the sea and it drowned. And a third one died when it was attacked by a dog, which is a subject we'll come back to in a bit. Understandably, people were very upset about this, but people were posting pictures from another seal colony called Donanook, where you can photograph them uh, from the other side of a fence, and the seals will come right up to the fence. And, yeah, unless you're stupid enough to stick your fingers through or something, people are safe and seals are safe. Everyone's happy. People are posting pictures and people and getting frankly abusive comments and i did go on and stick up for a couple of them and pointed it out and to be fair some people are like oh sorry i didn't realize i was just very worried and you know it's kind of an understandable reaction to some some degree but people should be careful not to just assume the worst all the time yes there are idiots among wildlife photographers as there are in all groups yes it seemed a bit harsh on some of the people that had you know taken the trouble to follow the wildlife code someone else was telling me they went up to i think it's horsey which is i don't know if it's still part of the same colony as winston because it's very sort of similar area and they yeah. stretch along the beaches these colonies he said he sat down quite away from mum and pup and the pup came right up to him and he just stayed where he was um, before then slowly backing off after getting a couple of shots so even if you see someone sitting next to a seal pup you don't know for sure if they've gone up to it or not yeah, if you are then a pup comes up to you, once you take a few shots, the good thing to do is obviously back off then, isn't it? But um Yeah, yeah I mean I, I just stay away from the beaches now, I can't bother to deal with it all. <laughs> it's I mean yeah, you I I do say I do feel sorry for a lot of the photographers that have you know, they've they have been victims of this this massive backlash against, you know, wildlife talk for the seals, but you know, that there are ways that you can do it, um, sensibly mm. and you know what with most photographers, they're using long lenses. You're talking about four, five hundred mil lenses. Um, and like Neil said, you know, I, I've I've actually experienced that myself. I've been sat there some distance from the seals, and you know, the, the pups come to investigate. You know, some of them are quite inquisitive, and they will come up to you. And you know, if that happens, you just need to back off slowly and carefully, and you know, away from you know the direction that they've come in as well. So you know, just 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 back off and find somewhere else to, to sit and watch and just be sensible about sensible about it, to be honest. And I think, you know, if you've got any concerns, what I'd say is just mm-hmm. kindly and politely just ask the photographer because the majority of them be more than happy to tell you, you know, the situation. And, you know, I know certainly for myself and, you know, I'm guessing for Neil as well, very open about that kind of stuff. If, you know, if someone wants to ask me how particular particular picture was taken you know and whether it was taken responsibly then I'm more than happy to have a sensible conversation with someone about it but real emphasis on the word sensible because the moment somebody starts attacking you as a photographer then mm. you know I'm, I'm not I'm not going to give you the time of day if you can't approach me politely about it and I'm very open you know I, I've I've been to to Winterton I was there actually just over a year ago photographing the seals with a zoom lens you know, and you can yep. get some great pictures, you know, and I can tell you now that most of my pictures were taken probably about 500 mil on a crop centre as well. So it's it's even further. So. Yeah, you know, we're near them then because they're quite big animals. So, yeah. And to be honest, you don't really want to get that close. Their breath really smells. Yeah, oh, I can't smell it. But um, I'd, <laughs> I'd be more concerned about those sharp teeth they have, which, yeah. uh, which apparently in the past people have gone, oh, cute little seal pup and ended up in Annie. Yes. Serves them right, quite frankly. Yes, in summary, A, don't be a around seals. <laughs> I, I might have to, uh, I'll, I'll bleep that out. Um, and B, uh, please don't go around accusing photographers of not caring about wildlife. Uh, cause it's pretty much the worst thing you can say to us, you know. 
which yeah, is what I, I did mean, point out to people on Facebook. I think uh, yeah, just just don't you know don't don't go around you know just accusing people willy nilly. You know, find out the facts, have a chat to the photographers. Like I said, most of the photographers, certainly all the wildlife photographers I know, we'd be yeah. more than happy to have a sensible conversation with anyone um, about how images are taken. So you just ask. You know, yeah. we're 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 just regular people. Just just ask us. And that leads quite nicely onto our other news yes. story. Um, there was a really uh, it's quite a well-written argument, and I think to be fair to um, a lady called Melissa H- Harrison um, wrote an article. I'm not sure if it was in the magazine proper. I didn't see it in there, um, but it's on the BBC Wildlife magazine website, and it's about dogs in nature reserves. And she made a quite reasonable argument, I think, that dog owners should be allowed to take their dogs into nature reserves. And the basis of which is a lot of people outside are dog walkers, which is fair enough. And, you know, you want to get, as many people as possible into nature so if you let dog walkers into nature reserve they're more likely to get into nature which is again a fair argument but on the flip side i've spent oh, what i've had a career working in country parks nature reserves and spent a lot of my free time in them as well and i've seen firsthand a lot of the damage that's been done and well i don't know did you want to say anything in particular on this one victoria um, well, I know from like my local reserves, so some of them, um, you're actually not allowed to take dogs at all um, because there have been problems in the past, um, particularly with, you know, where, where the otters are doing really well. Um, you know, mm. the, you actually, you, you cannot take dogs on parts of the reserves. Um, other parts of the reserves, it says you can pass through, you know, you can walk through the reserve on the main paths with your dog as long as it's on a lead. Um yeah, and I've actually met some really lovely people and you really got got to know some of the, the dog owners and the dogs, actually, when I've been out on some of the reserves. And generally speaking, a lot of them are responsible. The dogs are very well behaved. Um, you know, the, the owners clean up after their dogs. The the owners themselves, you know, they're out uh, when, when they're walking their dogs. They're, they're doing wildlife surveys as well while they're out there. So you know, there's a real benefit mm. to them being out there because they're maybe on those reserves every single day. Something that the rest of us can't afford the time to be at the same reserve, but they maybe go to that reserve every day to walk their dogs, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They see the changes and, and they record them. And that's really important for us as, you know, wildlife biologists, conservationists to know what's happening. So there there is a real positive side of it. But I've also seen the negative side as well, where you know, I've actually um, come close to being, well, I have been, you know, attacked by dogs on a nature reserve. Uh, thankfully, one was actually muzzled um, and I did actually throw a tripod in the direction of the other one. Um, yeah, I didn't hit the dog, but it was enough to warn the dog away from me. And, you know, this is on a reserve. This dog was uh, muzzled. It was a big dog as well, obviously really quite aggressive. And I was actually out surveying adders and bees. Um, mm. probably two very weird things to survey at the same site but God. you know they're both there in you know looking for particular species and I'd actually stopped because I'd actually hadn't seen this male adder to start with and he would and then you know I was looking for this I was following this bee and I was trying to get an idea on the bee and you know I saw this adder so I just stopped you know backed off ever so slightly and this dog I looked up and this dog just clocked me and went for me and it actually you know, it, I didn't realise until it was closer that it was muzzled um, and it actually went to attack me. And I just moved my camera, put my camera by my hip and it just went straight in, smacked my camera and actually end up bruising all down, you know, the side of my hip. And I don't bruise easily. I had a big bruise mm. from that. And, you know, that that's the negative side of it. And at that same reserve, we get dog walking vans. I've seen vans pull up. They open the back oh, doors. Yeah. 20 dogs get out. Not one of them is under control. They're tearing through vital wildlife habitats and in the springtime when you've got you know adders and grass snakes and that out basking and you know not one of them is under control um and you know the mess that is then left on those reserves and it's you know that that mess is toxic it can change the ph of soils um you know it, it have a real negative impact so i think it's it's a really hard one um yeah you know i don't think there's a right or wrong answer i don't think banning dogs completely from nature reserves I, I i don't know you know but it's where do you draw the line i think it's a tough one it is i mean i'm, I'm, I'm when i post about this on my facebook page i wrote off the top of my head what things i've witnessed and i've, I've been threatened and working 
I'm not even a, I was never even a ward and I was just in the education. Um, I've had groups of kids with me and had huge outstations coming up. And I'm trying to get these kids to enjoy the outside and, you know, it's not scary. It's great. And then a huge, great outstation comes up. The owner's got the option of going down a different path or through the field with the kids and they go through the field of the kids, you know, cover them in mud. I've had kids pushed into nettles. Uh, you can see the situation where a kid gets pushed over, dog jumps up, push kids over, cracks its head on a rock or a, a log, and God knows what's going to happen then. Uh, that aside, I mean, just the wildlife aspect, um, they're going to ponds and ditches, uh, stir them up, they're destroying the vegetation, disrupting breeding amphibians. And I've seen it time and time again. I mean, a whole load of ponds in an SSSI. The water's just brown and there's no vegetation because there's a constant stream of dogs going through them and it never settles. They're not ecologically dead, but all the rare stuff's not in there. The owners, you put signs up, you know, telling them there's rare animals in the pond, please keep them out, and the signs get ripped down. Unlike the signs asking people to pick up litter and stuff. I mean, this is the thing that annoys me, is that they instantly switch on to the, not all dog owners, I have to say, you know, the majority are pretty good. Not not perfect. I'd say the majority aren't as good as they should be, uh, but most of it's not sort of, you know, terrible stuff. You try and talk to be reasonable with some of them and they instantly switch into your job's worth or what about cats or what about the people dropping litter and it's kind of, well, you know, the litter's bad, but it's not chasing around breeding birds, is it? And um, I've seen uh, squirrels killed and we had a fox killed at one place I worked. A fox cubs, a dog just jumped on it and killed it. If you go to, I just don't bother going to Richmond Park anymore. It, it's funny, a certain ethical photographer, or self-proclaimed ethical photographer, got the Guardian to write a story on photographers harassing the deer. But when you actually looked at the press release, it was talking about dogs getting attacked by deer in the rut because people won't control their dogs. Um, rut, uh, Richmond Park lose, I think it's tens of um, deer calves and fawns to dogs every year. And you just wonder, in the New Forest, uh, the New Forest Dog Owners Association resisted moves to ban dogs from the breeding areas of wading birds. And if they're not already, the curlew is going to go extinct as a breeding bird in the New Forest because of disturbance and refusal from dog owners to control them. I mean, I could go on and on. But um, and people think I hate dogs. I actually quite like dogs. It's just some of the owners are just selfish there's no way around it really is there it's just really sad really because in ideal world we would let dog owners in but um even where dogs are meant to be on lead or you've got a dog area in a nature reserve it's ignored um, both reserves i've been to with dog areas the dogs using or well, the owners not the dogs i should say the owners are using every path except the one put there for them it's just really sad that one of my local reserves has got a lovely dog loop to walk your dog in near the car park nice field to let your dog run around in that is meant to be on a lead and the rest of the paths are covered in dog poo because they refuse to stick to where they're meant to. It's just... And the one argument's given, of course, is that if you keep on a lead, it's OK. But there is actually studies done that show that even on a lead, they cause more disturbance than a person on their own. And what's the other argument is children. Oh, children cause more disturbance. But if you've got a ditch either side of the path, the child isn't going to cross it. I mean, ditch full of water. Whereas I've seen dogs swim across it. I've seen people lift their dogs over anti-predator fences, running around chasing all the breeding birds. It's just... Yes, it's a never-ending onslaught. And I've I've never met a warden, oh, tell her, I have met wardens, but they own dogs themselves, that hasn't uh, <laughs> had a positive attitude on dog owners, put it that way. So, uh. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's a very passionate mm. um, area, I think. You know, it's something that, you know, Neil and I have discussed we'll probably cover in greater detail and actually maybe dedicate yeah. a whole episode to um, nature reserves, dogs, and, you know, how people and pet owners should behave and that's I think generally um, because I would say as well it's like I said I, I there's one particular reserve that I go to in the summer and almost every time I go up there I meet the same the same guy and his dog and we have a long chat and he walks the path every day mm. um, and he lets me know what he's seen and how things are going and how things have changed and yeah and his, his dog just Okay, his, his dog's quite elderly now, so she, she, you know, she just kind of bimbles along the path. Um, she never leaves the path, um, and you know, if, if when he stops to chat and when we have a chat, she just lays down on the path and waits for him. Um, so it's you know, there's 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 always positives and there's always negatives, um, yeah. and I think it's it's a really hard one. I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. I don't think, you know, an outright ban is going to work, um, but you know, maybe maybe there's a way. 
Yeah, I say if if we do ban dogs from, I think anything that's an S got an SSSI status, as long as it's one that's valid, I don't think there's an argument to take the dog on it. To well, dep- again, it's going to depend on the reserve, isn't it? But um, mm. anything with even remotely sensitive wildlife, I'm afraid, shouldn't have dogs on. But something that's more sort of country parky, maybe, and you have fenced off areas and stuff like. That. I mean, there's reserves nobody's allowed in because it's so sensitive. So um, yeah, yeah, which is quite right in my book. Um, but if if you ban dogs somewhere, you've got to have places for them to walk as well. Yes. I, well, the thing I'll never understand, and this is one of my friends brought this up to me, and I never, and he's a dog owner, or he was actually, um, and he said he never understand why people drive for literally sort of half an hour to get to a nature reserve to let their dog walk around. And it's all well and good saying, I want to enjoy the nature, but if you're flushing it and <laughs> destroying it, that's kind of selfish, really, isn't it? Really, when you, they, they must pass so many good places, more suitable places to walk the dog, and then as oh, I don't leave the dog at home, and there seems to be this almost culture that if you go for a walk in the countryside, you've got to have a dog and have it running off ahead of you, and you know, like Lady of the Manor or Lord of the Manor, and I just, yeah, I don't get it. That said, well, think... I'd love to have a dog if I didn't work full time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are great company. I I grew up, you know, with a dog. Um you know, and we would take him for walks and, and we were always, you know, there were some places that we would, we just wouldn't take him because it wasn't appropriate to take him. Um, but I know in the, in the fields around, um, you know, certainly around here, the where you have a lot of dog walking now, those fields, they used to be full of wildlife. They, you know, we would get grasshoppers and crickets and butterflies throughout the summer. And now the pH levels of the soil have changed so dramatically due to the you know the amount of of dog mess that's just being left they actually can't even graze cattle on the on the fields anymore um you know the reality is those fields are actually going to probably be built on and they'll they'll mm. build housing estate on it you know i i remember you know growing up and looking out the window and there there would be cows on it or sheep on it and now it's just kind of been left because the the pH of the soil has changed so much that it's it's almost dead. You know, there used to be orchids growing in those fields and there's just nothing anymore. So, you know, I, I think it's certainly something that I think maybe, you know, we can, we can cover over a whole episode. For sure. <laughs> We've half filled this one with it already. But, uh, we have, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we better move on. So shall we move on to our main topic? I think we should, yes. Yes. So the main topic, as promised, is ponds in winter. Probably unsurprisingly, Neil's going to take the lead on this one. Although, he did leave the amphibian stuff for me to have a chat about afterwards. That'd be nice. (laughs) Right, so ponds in winter, obviously, it gets cold. On land, most insects and vertebrates have disappeared. Um, not disappeared, disappeared. They're either eggs or pupa or adults tucked out of the way. It's surprising. I've done pond dipping when the pond has been pretty much frozen over and caught plenty of things. One of the first times, and not the first time, I caught a great silver water beetle was under the ice. For those that know, that's uh, the biggest insect in Britain. You think the size of a stag beetle, so a couple of inches long, sort of five, six, seven centimetres long. Massive great thing. Well, for Britain anyway, an insect. So how do these animals survive? Well, one thing you have to remember is in the UK, our ponds, unless they're extremely shallow, so less than six inches, which, well, I suppose the dry winters we've had, they might have been. Not this winter, though. Um, no. The pond will not freeze solid. So there's always going to be some liquid water at the bottom. And a lot of groups have taken advantage of this. Things like caddisflies, dragonflies, damselflies, mayflies, um, and in streams, stoneflies and stuff like that. They'll they t- overwinter as aquatic larvae. That's where the dragonflies have gone, with the exception of perhaps um, some of the migrant hawkers, possibly, um, and red veined darters, which are a small uh, red species, um, which migrate south as adults. Most of them will overwinter as nymphs in the pond. There is exceptions to all that. Uh, mosquitoes, there's some species of mosquito actually overwinter as adults. I remember once going into a pillbox in Essex, and it was in about this time of year, and it was full of mosquitoes all, all sat in the walls. And I believe they're all females from what I've I've read around there'll be females that have already mated the males have died um, and in spring they'll fly off find some temporary pool to lay their eggs in uh, depending on the species of course some of them will overwinter as larvae in the pond depending on the species of, of mosquito some midges 
winter midges will actually be flying around as adults this time of year. A cunning plan being, I'm guessing, that a lot of the predators like swallows and martins won't be around. They're all in Africa at the moment, of course. And the bats will be hibernating, so there's less predators around. Stoneflies, a lot of stoneflies do something similar as well. They come, they crawl out onto the rocks around streams. Sadly, we don't get many in Essex. They're more sort of a Scottish Highlands type thing. But what happens when the pond freezes? A lot of these animals, like water beetles, water scorpions, water boatmen, they all breathe air. So if the pond freezes over, you think, okay, they're going to die because they can't get to the surface. But they're, you know, they've evolved in this habitat, so they found ways around it. They'll dive down into the deeper water, so they're safe from freezing. And if you look closely at the uh, underside of a water boatman and the underside of some of the water beetles, um, under the wing cases of diving beetles, under the wings of water scorpions, they actually have a bubble of air which acts as a source of oxygen. Now, if they're not active, they don't need that much oxygen. But this bubble, due to physics and diffusion, which I'm not going to get too into because I'm a biologist, not a physicist, um, oxygen will flow in as they use up the oxygen. That means there's less oxygen in the bubble. And due to the laws of equilibrium, the oxygen will flow across the bubble surface into the bubble and carbon dioxide will flow out. So it acts as what's called a physical gill. So that's quite clever. And of course, as temperature drops, water holds more oxygen. So they they survive that way. Yeah, it's all rather clever stuff, really. Caddis flies, which are these small sort of caterpillary-like animals. Um, they look like moths when they're adults, but the larvae build these little cases. Most species build a little case, a uh, silk tube, and they're sticky for stones or vegetation or leaves or something on there. They all sometimes seal themselves in the case for winter. I do f- tend to find them more in, in winter. And uh, there's a creature called a phantom midge larva, which is about a centimetre long, which is half inch to three quarters of an inch. A completely transparent, um, and they're over winter as larvae. And I quite often find lots in winter in the ponds. Uh, they tend to feed on water fleas and stuff. I think I'll cover those at more detail another time. Sometimes, not so commonly in the southeast here, it also snows. So the pond freezes over, then you get snow on the top. Now, if it's no snow, the light can get through the ice. The plants keep carrying out photosynthesis, obviously at a slower rate, putting oxygen in the water, taking out carbon dioxide. Animals have got plenty to breathe. But when it snows, obviously it gets darker and the plants are photosynthesizing and they could possibly die and start to rot, using up more oxygen. And a lot of these animals, as mentioned, will then perish uh, as the oxygen level drops. But there's one particular specialist of these sorts of ponds, and that is the pond olive mayfly. I'm going to attempt the Latin name, Cloendipterum. This creature, they noticed in a lot of Swedish ponds that it was surviving, and it was pretty much the only thing in there in a lot of these ponds, ponds that are frozen over in winter. And they did some research into this. Some quite fascinating. There's quite a few papers if you look around. They have basically adapted to survive without oxygen in the water up to three or four months in anoxic winter water. As long as the water's near zero, so they don't need too much oxygen, they'll swim up to the uh, underside of the ice and when there's a thin layer of water they have a slightly more oxygen which is sort of seeping through the ice there they've got a high tolerance of hydrogen sulfide now when you run well you do a lot of exercise don't you um I do yes yeah or if you're like me and walk up the stairs your legs start to ache because of lactic acid build up and that's from anaerobic respiration so instead of using oxygen to breathe effectively using chemicals other chemicals um and they can use that as well to supplement their respiration. And they did a few experiments, and 50% of these nymphs survived 130 days in anoxic conditions at zero. Wow. Which is quite impressive, really. That, that is impressive. So basically, yeah, they use a, a sugar, sort of glucose stuff, instead of oxygen when they respire. It says, reading around research, is they actually store up glucose during the autumn to do this. But they're, they're amazing animals. I mean, they have some other little ad- adaptations, because... Most mayflies live in flowing water with high oxygen and stuff like this. And, you know, they, you know, you find them in northern Europe or southern Europe. These guys have basically spread across the entire of Eurasia, quite across Europe and Asia. They're one of the most widespread species of mayfly. Because they live in ponds, what they'll do is as adults, mayflies are famous for only living a day, whereas these guys will live for a month and they go along and as they lay their eggs, they instantly hatch in each pond so they can spread around lots of ponds as well. It's just... Amazing little creatures. I have to go into more depth with them at some point. So I'm sure yeah. we'll do another kind of pond creatures episode anyway. At least think, one, if not more. <laughs> I think they're the ultimate winter survivor of ponds. But I shall then hand over to you, I think, for some stuff on our little slimy amphibian friends. Oh, I can't call them slimy. slimy um, well, it's not a, not an um, insult. 
Slime is useful. They are a bit slimy. Kids really are down with the slime, isn't it? Cool at the moment, so you know, isn't slime the oh. in thing? It's probably not anymore. I'll take your word for it now. <laughs> yeah. Mucus. Um, mucus. <laughs> is another. So, yeah, well, oh, I do... take my word. Sorry. Yes, I thought even a word for it. <laughs> um, yeah, it completely disturbed my trailer thought there. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so it's actually a common question that actually comes up quite a lot. You know, what happens to our amphibians? In the winter, I mean, obviously we see them in the spring when they come out um, in large numbers to breed, and then they disperse. And you know, we see the babies in in kind of all the the froglets, toadlets, newlets, whatever in June and July. And then maybe we see a few more throughout the year. But generally speaking, you know, we don't see them in the winter. And a lot of people have actually asked me, what happens to them in the winter? And you know, our our native amphibians, so our frogs and our toads, and to uh, our frogs are newts and our toads they they all hibernate and actually they can't survive freezing um not our native species i will briefly mention an amazing you know couple of species that can survive a bit later um but i'll touch on toads first because toads don't um actually overwinter in the bottom of ponds so they will find um damp places in in our gardens in you know nature reserves generally anywhere that's kind of damp particularly kind of rotting wood is a favored site for them and you know they'll they'll actually hibernate in there uh, over winter and then re-emerge in the spring when temperatures start to to warm up but what happens with frogs and newts is a proportion of them will actually overwinter in the ponds those that don't will pretty much do the same that toads do and they'll find kind of damp areas of the garden also under paving slabs um, greenhouses sheds which is why people actually tend to find them there in the winter but that for those that actually use the ponds they'll actually go to the bottom of the pond and they'll kind of hide in the leaf litter at the bottom of the pond be it a big one or a small one and you know they'll they'll stay there um, and they can actually tolerate really low oxygen levels but can only survive if you know a few days if the water becomes deoxygenated because of where we are our ponds don't really freeze for long periods Um, we might get one or two days where they freeze over completely and you know for the larger ponds they might not even you know freeze over totally but if we do get really cold spells you may remember a couple of years ago we had um, the beast from the east hit in march this was bang you know right at the peak of the the breeding season for our amphibians and yeah a lot of the ponds did become completely frozen over and with quite thick ice as well and not only that we then had all the snow and that actually means that the light can't get to the the plant so they're not photosynthesizing they're not producing the oxygen and the water can become deoxygenated now you we're lucky here that you know it, it doesn't normally last for more than a couple of days but if it does and there's one particular area that i go to quite a lot and actually a week after that big storm hit there was still a lot of ice and a lot of snow around um right up on top of the mendips there um yeah and, and it can it can cause uh, big problems especially if they've actually come out of hibernation you know at that point um and you know, i think you know we you know I'll kind of touch on what to do or how to help ponds when it freezes over but something that's actually really interesting is that the majority of our common frogs, they they breed in the springtime, um, they lay their spawn in, we get tadpoles, and in June and July, the majority of those tadpoles have metamorphosed into little froglets, which then leave the pond and they go off and feed and, you know, often into the gardens and, and wildlife and that, um, into habitats. But there's a small, small number of um, tadpoles that actually don't metamorphose and they will actually overwinter as tadpoles in the ponds and come spring, they'll actually metamorphose and then leave the ponds as as froglets um, a little bit earlier than, you know, we would normally see them in, in kind of June and July. And, you know, we don't, we don't really know what the survival rate of these tadpoles are and we don't know why, you know, they, a small majority will overwinter as tadpoles um, yeah I believe, I believe they come out slightly bigger from what i've been told as well they do i mean expect, yeah. i mean i know in i think when i last checked probably about september time when i last saw them i still had about three or four tadpoles in my pond and i've only got a little pond it's maybe around about a meter square so it's only a little 
pond, but it's enough for the frogs to breed in. And I still had about three or four tadpoles in there in September. So if they survive the winter and so far it's been really mild, um, then, mm. you know, hopefully they'll, they'll continue. They'll complete their metamorphosis and actually come out as little froglets, you so know, in, do, late, in late spring. I do remember a few years ago, um, we had a very dry spring, which meant the newts migrated to the ponds later than they normally would, um, which meant we had egg laying until later. And there was quite a few newt tadpoles in the pond over winter. I'd dip every so often and I'd, I would find the smooth newts either. And yeah, I think they did metamorphose in the end from, from what I can see. And of course, I, I mentioned before the podcast too, didn't I? There was a, a documentary, I'm sure it's a David Attenborough one, where they talk about common toads, toads we, we have in the UK, across most of the country, in Scotland, because they breed a bit later, and it's a bit cooler, so the tadpoles develop slower. Overwintering as tadpoles and emerging the next year is almost the norm in some sort of highland areas in, in Scotland. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I haven't been able to find anything else about that. So if anyone does know anything about that, please uh, get in contact. Yeah, it's, it's basically, I mean, if they don't fully develop during the summer, then they'll mm. tend to overwinter tadpoles and and come out, you know, the next year. So, you know, assuming they survive, mm. um, you know, survive the winter. Um, but as I said, you know, our native amphibians can't actually um, survive freezing. But there are some species of frog that can actually withstand freezing altogether. Oh, yes. And I know, you know, you mentioned, Neil, about like glucose levels um, in, in some of the little pond creatures. Well, these particular frogs have high concentrations of glucose, uh, which actually acts as a natural antifreeze. Yes, but a lot sometimes, of the do that, yeah. Um, their hearts can actually stop beating, they stop breathing, and for all intents and purposes, they look like they're dead. But once they thaw out, the frog actually comes back to life again. So, you know, they can actually withstand freezing um, mm. to a point, which is absolutely incredible. I think that's actually amazing. Yeah, but our native amphibians actually can't do that, unfortunately. Yeah. No, a lot, a lot of our, I don't want to get too into depth, <laughs> went a bit short of time, but there's, doing a bit of reading on overwintering vertebrates, you have uh, freed avoidance, which is where animals will increase levels of sugars and various other dissolved solids in in their bodies to lower the, what they call the super cooling point, which is the point at which water will freeze. So salt water freezes at a, a lower temperature than fresh water and hypersaline, that really salty water, will freeze at even lower temperature. So they work on that basis. But there's other creatures that will um, get rid of as much water as possible, and they're called freeze-tolerant creatures. And I couldn't find any that actually live in the water, probably because it's hard to get rid of water when you're in water. Freezing kills animals. It can sort of denature enzymes and stuff, so that's what kills us because we're endothermic. The freezing kills by the when obviously when water freezes it expands and that shatters all the cells so if you get the water out of the cells or most of it when the ice crystals form they don't damage the cells and as a lot of creatures can actually survive that and there's i think there's some coronary midges and they're not native to the uk though that can survive this so they get rid of, sort of 90 percent of their water and but i think that's a whole other topic i have I, I would like to mention the the cool surface dwelling bugs that's your pond skaters and stuff like that. I did a little bit of research on them. There's one called a water cricket, Velia caprii, and there's uh, another species, I forget the name of it, is it Sarii? These are like, think of pond skaters, but a bit shorter and a bit stouter. They are very closely related to them. You tend to find them on streams and ponds, they do turn up in woodland ponds especially. As winter approaches, they will crawl, they will hang around the water a bit, but they'll crawl away. Someone found one in a pitfall trap hundreds of metres from any water, so they can't fly, so they must just dispersed in this as well and pond skaters they all disappear in winter some of them in the water crickets they, they sort of hedge their bets they'll have some nymphs some adults and some eggs tucked away so whatever happens they should survive whereas pond skaters um, i think they overwinter as adults but i do believe they go away from the pond I was, I was trying to find some definitive answers to that they do seem to disappear from the pond entirely in winter i've noticed and come back in spring but they they again they've got where they lower in the super cooling, cooling point with putting lots of sugars in their body fluids and stuff and various other chemicals and there's lots of chemicals in water beetles and various other things that we're not entirely sure what they do um, there's some research into some of it's sort of anti-predatory but it does appear there seems to be sort of an anti-freeze effect a lot of the chemicals in a lot of these insects bodies so um and I, and I think you know you know you look at our wildlife and it has an amazing ability to survive mm. 
Um, beer otherwise <laughs> well no no i wouldn't uh, but it has an amazing ability to survive you know these ups and downs and these extremes i mean you know we can go from minus 10 in the winter to you know 30 degrees in the summer mm. you know and, and have you know one week it can be, i mean i know last year i think we had a week in february it was like 18 19 degrees so everything started coming out you know we had mm. butterflies and vertebrates frogs that, yeah. toads newts everything came out and then we just had a massive downpour of snow and freezing conditions. And, it, okay, it, it did take its toll, um, definitely yeah. took its toll on, on the amphibian population. I had a few sure. dead frogs. Um, but I imagine I had, I had mating, well, um, in cop frogs under the ice, which is I've never seen before last year. That was just really weird that winter. But um... But it's, you know, I think... You know, it, it's it's really interesting, and um, I think one one thing to touch on is if we do, because we're kind of January now, and I know for us, mm. February's normally our really cold month. That's when we start to get the real kind of yeah the sub-zero temperatures. So um, Neil and I thought we might you know just give you a few little tips if you've got a garden pond and you know you you want to know what to do if it freezes over or if we have snow. We thought we'd give you a couple of little tips just to kind of help that pond life through those those cold times uh, the first place i will send you is the freshwater freshwater habitats trust a fantastic charity it used to be known as pond conservation they are a fab group and they've got lots of information on how to look after your pond and set it up and the common questions are um you know what do i do if it freezes over well if it's a wildlife pond and there's no fish in there usually the best thing to do is just leave it if there's snow on top, you might want to clear some of the snow off for the reasons I mentioned earlier. You know, it stops the plants photosynthesizing and can leave to oxygen loss. And there's all sorts of things people say, like put a float a ball in it and smash the ice a bit. You might want to smash the edge of the ice so foxes and birds can have a bit of a drink. I tend to just put a bird bath, but I do, I do find actually if you crack the ice in the pond, it stays unfrozen longer than a bird bath if it's sort of minus two or something so it's going to freeze quickly as i said all these animals have evolved to survive this so they should be okay unless there's something else wrong with your pond if you've got fish that's a whole different matter it's more of a fish care thing and if you've got fish in a wildlife pond why why it's not good for all the other animals but um yeah unless you've got uh, like stickleback or something oh well i'd actually say you know the the pond that we have at um the house that i grew up in my childhood mm. home um we actually we do have fish in the pond but the pond has two sides to it and yeah. the shallower side we've actually turned into a wildlife pond and the fish can't actually get into that side mm. um because the water's too shallow and the fish are too big they can't actually physically get there anymore and to quite frequently see the frogs and the toads in the big in the like the deep end of the pond oh, but yeah, the adults are fine but they actually all breed in the shallow end where all the vegetation is um, and yeah. we, you know, I've worked, I've spent two years working on that pond to turn it more into a wildlife pond. So you, you can get, you know, it can oh, work. Oh, you can. Oh, uh, we uh, don't uh, have goldfish, though. I would say that uh, we don't have goldfish. Yeah. So uh, goldfish and carp are like the, including koi, are like the worst things What in terms of eating the wildlife. Breaking the ice, maybe a little bit for the wildlife, but you don't have to. There's like no said, real research into, there's no real kind of evidence to say that breaking the ice actually makes that much of a difference. Uh, some people say put a pump in which will stop the ice freezing but what happens in winter is you get sort of you know the top layers exposed to the coldest air but the ice acts as an insulator like a blanket almost and keeps the water below it, below it liquid and a little bit warmer so that's what nature's that's what everything's evolved to deal with whereas pond creatures don't do so well with flowing water as well so uh, just leave it be and maybe clear off the snow seems to be the best the best yeah. advice if, if we get if we get snow, um, clear the snow away from. You don't have to clear the snow away from the whole pond. Just clear it yeah. away from the plants so they can still photosynthesize. Because even in our winter sun, it might not be that strong. It's still enough for the plants to photosynthesize to a point. Yeah, Neil mentioned about the the pond life um, website. If if you've got if you're more kind of into amphibians, it's worth having a look at frog life as well, because they've got some great tips for oh, yeah. um, looking after your ponds um, and also creating different habitats, depending on what you're kind of looking at. So frog life's another really good website just to mm. pop on. And there's loads of information on there as well to help you. R random, random slight tangent. Do you know frog life used to have a frog helpline before the web was a, a, a major thing? Because uh, uh, a chap called Jules Howard, who wrote the, wild, the recently published Wildlife Pond book, which is very good, I have to mention. Um, 
he's not paying me a commission on this either. I've never actually met him in person. I've spoken to him online many times. Uh, but he used to man the phone line. It's Jules Howchap. So uh, he also did a, a podcast on a little pond he had. So that's worth checking out. Um, if you Google Jules Howard Pond, it should come on podcast. It should come up. There's lots of little short 20 minutes ones. Uh, what turns up in his, he had a little sink pond. It's amazing what you can get in just a little sink pond. Yeah, yeah. well, I think I think maybe we can cover pond creation for yes. different gardens. And that that's definitely a whole episode that we can have a look into, I think. I think so. Well, I think we better start wrapping up because I think we've gone over the hour mark. Oh, yes, we have gone over the hour mark. And frankly, I can't bother to edit too much more than that. So (laughs) (laughs) I think we just need to finish up by saying, first of all, thank you for everyone for listening. Spread the word. If you have any questions, please just write in on wildlife, preferably. It's not where babies come from. If so, ask your parents. (laughs) Yeah, check us out. We're on Facebook under UK Wildlife Podcasts, unsurprisingly. Uh, On Twitter under at UK wildlife pod and you can find me on twitter and facebook but my website's uk-wildlife.co.uk and you can find all my other contacts on there anything else victoria I um i just say you know we we love we've loved having kind of some some feedback and also oh, yes. the questions so please do keep sending them in um, and we'll try our very best to get them answered um for you in up and coming episodes if you're on twitter please use the hashtag uk wildlife podcast that actually helps us find the questions a lot more easily and then we can mm. you know answer them you can ask us questions on there as well and you know we'll we'll answer them on there um keep you up to date with, with various things as well um and yeah so you can so neil said so you can find us both on on twitter our, our twitter handles are actually on our on the uk wildlife podcast page uh, and you know my website's fixpix.com where you can find out all about what i'm up to as well um so yeah just you know, echoing what neil said thank you very much for listening and also i'd like to wish everyone a very happy new year as well indeed we should start the show with that but there we go there we go <laughs> maybe maybe from the magic of editing i can put it at the start nope can't bother right. <laughs> right well we'll see you all next time all right take care bye, bye.